You're listening to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast, and we're in the series Associations in the Greco-Roman World. I'm Phil Harland, a prof at York University in Toronto. In this episode, we turn to the question of placing Judean groups and Christian groups within the broader context of associations in the Greco-Roman world. We'll soon see that not only can the historian looking back at the Roman Empire sociologically see that Judean groups and Christian groups sort of fit within the context of associations and that a scholar can talk like this looking back at history, but even back in the times of the early Christian groups and Judean immigrant groups, there were contemporaries who recognized the analogy between associations of the general type and these specific, more cultural minority associations of Judeans and Christians. And so we explore this idea of Jewish groups and Christian groups as associations in this episode. Once again, I would point you to the books I've written that help to expand what we're talking about in this podcast and provide a lot of the evidence and scholarship that is behind what we're talking about here. Back in 2003, there was Association Synagogues and Congregations that you can get from Fortress Press, available also online at places like Amazon.com. Then, more recently, I wrote Dynamics of Identity in the World of the Early Christians. And finally, we have a forthcoming source book that collects together inscriptions in English translation for you called Associations in the Greco-Roman World, a source book. That one's coming out with Baylor University Press probably in 2012. Anyhow, all of that information can be accessed through my website where there are also companion websites for the first two books that I just mentioned. So I hope you enjoy this episode where we start to get into the question of where do Jewish groups and Christian groups fit in relation to this whole discussion of associations. I wanted to finish off the discussion of introducing associations by placing Judean synagogues, Jewish synagogues, and groups of Jesus followers within the context of associations so that you understand this is the place they fit in the social map of the ancient Mediterranean. The bird's eye view of the ancient Mediterranean, Christians are not very prominent. In the first century and second century, they're an obscure group. They're gradually becoming known to some people. Anyhow, it's within the context of associations in a course like this that it makes most sense to at least touch on these minority cultural groups. And I'm using followers of Jesus as an example of a minority cultural group. And Judeans as an example of an immigrant group. Now, associations and Christian groups have been compared from that earlier period in the late 19th century that we referred to when associations started to be studied. Some theologians, some people who are interested in early Christianity, noticed this rising interest in associations within the classics, within classical studies, and started to say maybe it's worth comparing these associations in the Greco-Roman world with Christian churches. And a couple of scholars that did this were George Heinrichi and Edwin Hatch. So these scholars started to compare Christian groups to associations. They started to consider the idea that Christian groups are just an example of this social formation that existed in the Roman Empire. What happened, though, is a whole lot of theologians got a little bit upset about that whole idea of Christian groups just being another uh, Greco-Roman association. How dare you compare the pagan groups to the Christian groups? So that initial suggestion of Heinrichi and Hatch, and they did little studies that showed it was valuable, died out because of that reaction. 
And then it arises again in the 1960s and the 1970s. A guy named Erwin Judge in the mid-60s indicates a re-emergence of this idea of comparing Christian groups and associations. And he has a chapter on associations as one of the social structures that could, can help us understand Christian groups. He tends to the view, though, again, the uniqueness of Christianity. But, uh, but at least he's uh, raising it again in the mid-60s. In the 70s, another guy named Abraham Mallerby starts to get interested in the social history of early Christianity before most other people are. Social history just emerges within the history discipline in the 60s primarily, right? And then starts to really gain momentum in the 70s, in history generally. That starts to influence New Testament scholars very late. But Mallerby was a little ahead of the game and was already starting to say, okay, set aside ideology for a minute. We don't need to just study early Christians just for what they believe or what they say about God or what they say about Jesus. We can study early Christians as people living in a place and figuring out what they do socially and, and how their groups function and how their groups fit within society and, and those sort of social historical questions that now are far more prevalent. What I would say, the quick way I would put it is this. Jesus groups and Judean synagogues are associations of the normal type, socially speaking. They're groups of 15 to 50 members that get together regularly to have meals and engage in rituals. So they're, they're normal in all kinds of ways in this sort of broad view of how you would view associations in this world. On top of that, we're soon going to see both insiders back then, not just a scholar now saying, hey, bird's eye view of the Greco-Roman world, Christian groups look an awful lot like associations, not just a scholar. But people back then, people within the groups, used the same terminology sometimes to describe their group as associations did. And people outside the groups, a non-Christian describing a Christian, used the language of associations to describe them and saw them as associations. We as a modern scholar can look at a society sociologically and say, Okay, what sort of social structures do we see here? How can we categorize those social structures? But on top of that, people back then recognized the similarities, recognized that Christian groups were another association, but a peculiar one. This is the little twist to it, right? They're cultural minority associations. They're associations of cultural minorities. They're normal in the sense of being an association, recognizable to people. People would have thought of them as an association, but they're weird, and the weird thing is this monotheism that leads to a whole lot of other practices that are different. So what Christians sometimes came to be labeled when they were somewhat understood was atheists. They deny our gods. So in that sense, these are peculiar groups that have trouble fitting in, but in other ways, we'll see in the coming weeks, they have ways of fitting in. They do have ways of you know, participating in the customs of society without necessarily participating in honoring the Greek and Roman gods. So let me say a few words more about uh, how both internally and externally, back then, uh, Judean groups and Christian groups were viewed as associations. I've mentioned this already, shared terminology. So we have among these groups a shared set of terms that are used over and over again to designate your group. So you call yourself a sonatos, you call yourself a theosos, you call yourself whatever, right? And that these shared terms are attested in a variety of ways. 
so that we have Judean calling a Judean group a synod in the same way that we have associations calling themselves synod. We have many groups, both Judean and non-Judean, calling themselves a synagogue. I already gave you the example of that one monument we were looking at, right, from Kitzigas, where it's male and female society members devoted to God, uh, the god Zeus in, Ap in Apamea, near Kitzigas, and they meet in the synagogue of Zeus. Synagogue used in reference to an association of another kind, right? A lot of this evidence in Asia, northern Asia Minor and in Thrace, above Turkey. So we have a, uh, a synagogue of barbers attested, a synagogue of ore dealers, and very commonly attested is the title of synagogos as a leader title within a group. Remember that synagogue just means synago, gathering together. Gathering. Synagogue just means gathering. So the title synagogue is the best example of this uh, widespread use of terms that Judeans use for themselves so that they would uh, naturally be recognized as an association of the normal type, in, in, at least in regard to how they title themselves and how they describe their group. Josephus and Philo are both Judeans in the first century CE. Josephus is a Judean historian. Um, and in the process of writing his, in this case, in the Antiquities, where he's uh, demonstrating how old Judean culture is and therefore superior Judean culture is, to a Greek and Roman audience. He's telling the history of the Judeans in the process of trying to prove this. He gets to a section where he documents all kinds of official statements by Roman authorities and civic authorities that show that Judeans should be given freedom to pursue their honoring their own God within the Greek cities, and that Judeans should be allowed to collect the temple tax before the temple is destroyed to be sent to, to Jerusalem and that they should be able to engage in their own customs and their own food laws and that sort of thing. And so he cites a whole lot of official statements by different authorities to that effect. And one of these is this. Julius Gaius Praetor, Consul of the Romans to the Magistrates. So we're talking about Julius Caesar here. Council and people of Perium, which is in Asia Minor. Reading. The Judeans in Delos and some of the neighboring Judeans, some of your envoys also being present, have appealed to me and declared that you are preventing them from statute, from observing their national customs and sacred rights. Now it displeases me that such statutes should be made against our friends and allies and that they should be forbidden, etc., etc. For, for example, Gaius Caesar, our consular praetor, by edict forbade theosoi societies to assemble in the city. But these people alone he did not forbid to do so or to collect contributions of money or to hold common meals. Similarly, do I forbid other theosoi, but permit these people alone to assemble other theosoi? They're being talked about here as if they're an example of a theosos, a society, a very common term for associations here. And it's presented as though it's a Roman document here, right? So an outsider perspective, Romans describing Judeans as though they're an example of theosos. Here's Philo of Alexandria, who's a philosopher, who's a Judean. He's sort of like a Stoic Judean philosopher living in Egypt, in Alexandria. He likewise refers to imperial activities in relation to Judean synagogues in this document. He's going to be on an ambassadorial team to the emperors to defend the rights of the Judeans in Alexandria against some Greeks in Alexandria who are, have, there's ethnic tensions in Alexandria in the mid-first century CE, 
and Philo is on the team of Judeans who are going to argue their point before the emperor. And Greeks are sending their team to go and argue their point, uh, what they want. And in the process of one of his writings, Philo talks about the argument he made and the documents he referred to in the process of uh, making an argument before the emperor that the Judeans' claims should be respected rather than the Greeks of Alexandria's claims. I had to give you that context. But this, then we happen to have this referred to here, the language that we're talking about that shows that he, he and the Romans both think of the Judeans in this context of associations. While I have a great abundance of evidence to show the wishes of your great-grandfather Augustus, I will content myself with two examples. So he's talking to Caligula here. The first is a letter which he sent to the governors of the provinces in Asia, as he had learnt that the sacred first fruits were treated with disrespect. In other words, Judeans had been gathering first fruits to be sent to the temple in Jerusalem. He ordered that the Judeans alone should be permitted by them to assemble in synagogues. These gatherings, synodoi, he said, were not based on drunkenness and carousing to promote conspiracy and so to do grave injury to the cause of peace, but were schools of temperance and justice where men, were, while practicing virtue, subscribed to the annual first fruits to pay for the sacrifices which they offer and commissioned sacred envoys to take them to the temple in Jerusalem, etc. But this language, synodos and synagogue, used uh, interchangeably here in reference to these sorts of gatherings that Judeans have, and it's Philo, a Judean, who's using that vocabulary and understand, placing them within that context. We have ancient authors, both insiders and outsiders. In other words, Judeans who belong to a Judean association and outsiders, Roman authorities, using the same vocabulary to express these Judean groups as they would to talk about any other associations. And so we began to see that the, even in the ancient context, these uh, Judean groups, Judean synagogues and Christian congregations would be placed broadly within the context of other associations and understood in that sense. And I used Josephus and Philo, first century Judeans, as examples of Judean authors who seem to use the vocabulary that common to associations to refer to Judean groups. So an insider perspective that sees Judean synagogues as though their associations, uh, sure, of a superior kind, but puts them within the context of associations in terms of them, that sort of social framework. What we ended with, though, is not saying much about this external categorizations of Christians. One of our earliest references to followers of Jesus outside of the Christian literature is Pliny the Younger's letter. So Pliny the Younger is going to be another example of Christian groups being viewed as associations, is what I'm suggesting to you. So Pliny the Younger is a Roman governor uh, in Bithynia Pontus, up in the northern part of Asia Minor. And he has been especially appointed by the Emperor Trajan because there's all kinds of problems in the cities of Bithynia and Pontus that are not characteristic of other provinces in Asia Minor. And so it's sort of like a special scenario where the Emperor Trajan needs a special governor to try and sort things out, get things back on track, and there's a special attention, you could say, given to organizing things in Bithynia and Pontus under Pliny the Younger's rule. The reason I point that out is it's not a, you can't take it as um, typical of every other province, as we'll soon see. Um, but when Pliny the Younger uh, 
consistently writes to the Emperor Trajan to get help and to get confirmation and to see whether or not uh, the Emperor is in agreement with what Pliny's trying to do in cleaning up the province. So on one occasion, in a city in northern Asia Minor, maybe at Amastris, we're not sure, some followers of Jesus were brought before Pliny the Younger. This is in 110 CE approximately. This is among our earliest external references to followers of Jesus. The first time it comes on our radar screen from Roman sources. The first time we ever see Christians from Roman sources instead of from Christian sources. Now what's very clear in this letter is, first of all, that Pliny the Younger doesn't even know what to do with them. The whole impression of the letter, if you read it when you get home, is that Pliny knows almost nothing about them until he has these Christians brought before him. It seems that local people disliked these followers of Jesus and brought accusations before the governor in sort of a court setting, with the governors functioning as the judge. And in this context, he had them interrogated, looked into things, tried to find out as much as he could about them. So let's look at uh, a little bit of it, just so you have context here, before you see how this relates to the whole question of Christian groups being viewed as an association by a Roman government. It is my custom, sir, to refer to you all cases where I am in doubt, for who can better clear up difficulties and inform me? I've never been present at any legal examination of the Christians. This is a Pliny the Younger, the governor, the main ruler of this whole territory in Asia Minor, has never seen a follower of Jesus being tried in any way. And I do not know, therefore, what are the usual penalties passed upon them, or the limits of those penalties, or how searching an inquiry should be made. I have hesitated a great deal in considering whether any distinction should be drawn according to the ages of the accused, whether the weak should be punished as severely as the more robust, or whether the man who has once been a Christian gained anything by recanting. So some of them are saying they're no longer followers of Jesus. Again, whether the name of being a Christian, even though otherwise innocent of a crime, should be punished, or whether the crimes gathered around it. This whole issue of why would you even take action against the Christians? Is it just for being a Christian, or is it for the fact that Christians are known to engage in crimes? He asks them whether they're Christians, asks them again whether they're Christians, throws them into prison, or has them killed. If they keep being obstinate in not just switching their view of things to please a Roman governor. Some time passes between the first Christians being brought before him and then more accusations. So an anonymous pamphlet came around listing followers of Jesus to try and get them in trouble. He makes up a sort of a ritual way of testing whether someone's a Christian, that he asks them to make uh, sacrifices to the gods because he's heard rumor that they won't sacrifice to our gods. So this is a quick way of finding out whether someone's a Christian. He interrogated some other people and they said that they were Christians and then denied it, insisting that they had been but were no longer, that they recanted many years ago, as far back as 20 years ago, 90 CE. He knows that they won't worship the image, so that's what he uses as a test he talks about here. Here's where we come to the important thing for us, though. It gives you a, a, an idea of how this Roman governor views these uh, Christians. They declared that this, the, their guilt or error was simply this, 
On a fixed day, they used to meet before dawn and recite a hymn among themselves to Christ as though he were a god. So far from binding themselves by oath to commit any crime, they swore to keep from theft, robbery, adultery, breach of faith, and not to deny any trust money deposited with them when called upon to deliver it. This ceremony over, they used to depart and meet again to take food, but it was of no special character and entirely harmless. They also had ceased from this practice after the edict which I issued, by which, in accord with your orders, I forbade all societies. So here, Pliny refers to a law he passed in the context of Bithynia and Pontus because of the problems they were having, was that associations were not allowed to be formed because they were seen as a political problem in the cities of this particular province at this time. What's interesting is he's implying that the Christians saw the law regarding associations and took themselves to be an association and decided they could no longer have nocturnal, probably only nighttime meetings that were part of this law. It seems to be implied in what's said here. Um, that it's just you weren't allowed to meet at night as an association. And that the members of these Christian groups had stopped having their nighttime meetings in response to a law about associations. In other words, this implies that the Christians themselves interpreted their groups as associations. Also, Pliny is placing them within that context. Even the way he describes briefly what they do sounds a lot like an, what a Roman governor would perceive as an association. On top of that, though, he thinks that they're a superstition, which is a particularly Roman upper-class attitude. Um, further on, it's, it says right here, I then thought it more needful to get at the facts behind their statements, so he interrogates two women who are leaders of the Christian group under torture and founds only, to him, it's just a debased superstition. This is a, a upper-class Roman's way of saying they don't do things like us upper-class Romans in the city of Rome do. Anything other than that is a superstition in the context of, of this sort of governor's perspective. So this is hinting at the fact that the Christian groups may have understood themselves as associations and that a Roman governor might treat them as though they are. Before we go, though, let's at least say what Trajan responds with, right? Trajan's the emperor. You have adopted the right course in examining the cases of those cited before you as Christians. For no hard and fast rule can be laid down covering such a wide question. In other words, he doesn't really have, it's not well defined by the Roman imperial regime how to approach these followers of Jesus. The Christians are not to be hunted out. If brought before you and the offense is proved, they are to be punished, but with this reservation. If anyone denies he is a Christian and makes it clear he is not by offering prayer to our gods, then he is to be pardoned on his recantation, no matter how suspicious his past. So as soon as you say, okay, I'm no longer a Christian, you're fine. As for anonymous pamphlets, they are to be discarded absolutely, whatever crime they may charge. For they are not only a precedent for of a very bad type, but they do not accord with the spirit of our age. So no more, uh, don't accept any anonymous accusations again against Jesus followers or anyone else. So there's an interesting little glimpse in our earliest evidence from a Roman perspective on Jesus followers that hints at the fact that they could be viewed as an association that the groups themselves may have treated themselves in that way. On top of that you have other outsiders in later times referring to Christian groups using the vocabulary of associations that, that I outlined for you last time. 
Seleucian also has, in some of his writings, references to Christians that uses the vocabulary of associations to describe them. Likewise, Celsus uses the Theosos language. Celsus is a, a critic of early Christianity that we only know of from Oregon's response to him. But we have consistent evidence of Christian groups being viewed as associations, is the point. So that was all to give sort of a basis on which it would be valuable to include followers of Jesus and Judean associations in our discussion of associations. That's what we sort of set up here, so that we can at least place that, those sort of minority groups within the context of what we've been talking about.